0: You're listening to New Books in Geography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Nancy Langston, author of Climate Ghosts, Migratory Species in the Anthropocene, published this year by Brandeis University Press. Dr. Langston, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much. It's a great pleasure to be here.
0: So to start off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book? Sure.
1: Well, I am an environmental historian at Michigan Technological University, and this is my fifth book. And I actually trained not so much as an environmental historian, but initially as an ecologist. I was working in Zimbabwe on migratory birds, and I got very interested in conflicts between colonial settlers and native peoples, between conflicts over land tenure, who had a right to the resources. And at that time in the late 80s, Zimbabwe was really caught up in fortress conservation tensions. So for my final year of my PhD, I couldn't get permits to return to Zimbabwe because of political tensions with Mugabe's government. And I returned to the United States where I was a grad student at University of Washington in zoology. And that final year, I switched to a special independent PhD. Richard White, the great environmental historian, had just come to University of Washington, and he was incredibly generous about being on my committee. So I did work in ecology, geography, and forestry, and wrote my first book, which was on conflicts over old growth forests. And I eventually became a forestry professor at University of Wisconsin-Madison, And after 17 years there, I moved up to Michigan Tech on the shores of Lake Superior because my last two books have focused on the upper Great Lakes and looking at climate change and changes in ecosystems and what we can learn by partnering with Indigenous communities during an era of rapid environmental change.
0: Okay, so to get into the content of your book here, let's start with the title uh, and this concept of a ghost species. So what is a a ghost species? And uh, why did you choose the three species that you focus on in this book?
1: Yeah, ghost species, I first became really interested in them back when I was an ecology grad student at Washington. Edward Grumbine, in the late, in the early nineties had published a wonderful book called Ghost Bears about the near extinction of grizzly bears in the Pacific Northwest. And he argues that ghost species are those that have not gone completely extinct, although they may be lost or extirpated from a particular area. So there's still trace DNA fragments, small isolated populations, sometimes lone individuals roaming a, de- a desolate landscape in search of a mate. And I became very interested in them um, in the Upper Great Lakes because we are on the verge of extinction for a host of species that I think are still really, really important to who we are as humans in the upper Great Lakes. So I chose woodland caribou, which used to be the most widespread of all deer species in the Great Lakes region. They once stretched all the way from the north forest of Maine, all the way out to the prairies of Minnesota, north to Hudson's Bay. And they're really on the verge of extirpation now. A couple years ago, just 18 lone individuals were left of this once incredibly extensive population. Yet they're still part of our our names, Caribou Coffee, every suburb has Caribou Court. So those are ones that are almost lost. And then... um, Sturgeon are much more hopeful story. They almost went extinct, but now there's really tremendous restoration efforts led by First Nations community and tribes, Anishinaabeg tribes in the Great Lakes. So they're the hopeful story. And common loons are a long distance migrant like the other two species that people think of as incredibly common, as thriving. But I argue even though there are more than 250,000 breeding pairs in Canada and the U.S. of common loons, that they are at real risk of extinction. But we have a chance right now to really pay attention and to help restore their populations. So three species, one fish, One mammal, one bird, three migratory species, and three different species with whom humans have formed really powerful relationships over millennia.
0: Yeah. And I guess we're recording this not too long after Halloween. So maybe I just have like (laughs) ghosts on the mind because I've been, you know, thinking about the fact that just about every culture on earth seems to have some sort of concept of ghosts, but you know, the ghosts manifest differently, do different things within their understanding of the world. So I'm just thinking about, you know, how far can we push the metaphor of, of ghosts for thinking about uh, some of these species, you know, and, and with some of the things that we think of about ghosts, right? Ghosts are, People that we had some sort of a, a connection with, ghosts are—you uh, know—you you hear ghosts are like people with unfinished business, and you know these species weren't finished; they weren't ready to to go when they were uh, pushed towards uh, towards extinction. And um, you know, not everybody can see ghosts, right? Some people see a ghost; some other people will say it's not there. And I feel like these are probably the same thing with some of these species that some people can see the traces of them. Uh, and their physical, like, you know, actually see examples of them still walking around and other people won't see them as part of the landscape anymore.
1: Yeah, that's a really powerful way of putting it. I actually wrote much of this book during the COVID, during the first months of the COVID pandemic. I had been on a Fulbright in um, in Canada, where many of my research partners are at Lakehead University. And then when the world shut down, Canada, or Fulbright, required that we leave. And I ended up working in a tiny cabin along Lake Superior reading all these really heartbreaking stories about funeral rituals and how they had been so cut off and traumatized because people could not go to participate in our grieving rituals and our rituals of burial and death. And it really made me think beyond just the genetic meaning of ghost's DNA or endlings and think about what Derrida, of course, calls, hauntology are the idea of ghosts as repressed traumas that keep bubbling up but that we have it if we can pay attention to then we really have a much better chance of forming just relationships for the future
0: yeah and that that relationships idea i feel like is a really important one uh in your book um And then you also talk a lot about agency. uh, And you make a point of rejecting the sort of conventional idea of agency as intentional action that humans will claim sort of a monopoly on. Right, We're the only ones with agency. We're the only ones that can intentionally do things in the world. So uh, I was wondering if you could talk about what do we gain from taking this broader idea of agency, where it's not just intentional human action that counts as uh, agency?
1: Yeah, great question. Um, I think we gain the potential to really rethink human relationships to more than human species, to the broader ecosystems within which Everything we do takes part. Think of the rest of the world as more than just this backdrop for the drama of human creation, um, and instead recognize that even though our ability to understand the languages, the meanings of other species may be really fragmentary, that doesn't mean that they don't have agency, that they don't act upon the world, that they don't direct their own meanings. So, for example, I've um, in the last oh, 10 years, I spent a certain amount of time working with different indigenous communities around the world who have relationships with reindeer, which are the same species as caribou. They're all members of this trans-global um, Arctic species. And when I was spending time with Sami communities in Sápmi in northern Scandinavia, the settler colonial government of Sweden really saw reindeer as any other livestock, as objects that you could move around. And if there was going to be a mine that blocked traditional migration pathways for reindeer, you could just put them in a helicopter or maybe put them on a train or truck and ship them around. And so you could have both your big mining project and your reindeer, that they were basically widgets in a machine. And from the Sami perspective, and the Sami, of course, really well integrated into modern technology. They use helicopters, they use trains. They aren't trying to be some neo-traditional group. But for the Sami, um, reindeer are not just machines, they are creatures with agency. And so rather than thinking of them as completely domesticating reindeer, basically enslaving them, they see their relationship with reindeer as one of relationship. And the reindeer in their view are really semi-domesticated, that the reindeer get choices, they make choices about where to go. And if you fracture the world, then they can choose just to leave you. And I also worked with Satsun reindeer herders in Mongolia. All this was before COVID shut down international travel, who um, also have long had nomadic relationships with reindeer and share some really powerful common beliefs that reindeer are the ones making the choices, that it's their job as humans to respect those choices, to acknowledge that reindeer have agency and power and knowledge and indeed to learn from reindeer's knowledge, to learn which plants are safe, to learn which meadows are in good condition, to learn which grasslands and montane ecosystems need to be rested, for example, to help them heal from temporary overgrazing. So this idea of other animals having the ability to make decisions, to be conscious, to be participants in the world, is common across many indigenous communities and also common across a lot of scientific communities. So I believe it's really, really powerful in thinking about a way future where we can imagine human relationships that aren't based on dominance and simplification, but instead are based on resilient kinship.
0: Yeah, and then this perspective that you're, you're laying out here about agency and, and relationship, I think you say, also complicates how we think about the concept of the Anthropocene, which, you know, is a word we hear all the time. It's even in the subtitle uh, of your book. But your approach here suggests that we need should be thinking differently about what the Anthropocene means.
1: Sure. Um, like many other scholars, when I first heard the term Anthropocene, I thought, well, this is really cool. These set of scholars from John McNeil, an environmental historian, to a whole set of chemists and geologists have really quantified all the changes that have happened since World War II, the Cold War era to now, and shown that we have become humans, have become essentially geologic processes. We move more minerals or we move more um tailings and just stuff across Earth's surface than forces of erosion have. And because I've spent much of my career working on mining and mining waste, I thought, oh, this is really cool. You can quantify how we've used Earth's resources. But as I said, a political ecologists have pointed out, the term Anthropocene kind of elides the fact that everybody on Earth doesn't use the same amount of resources, that you could also call this the, the Capitalocene or the Politocene or the... Um, Uh, are the plantation scene, which is a really awkward word, I have to say. So I find Anthropocene really valuable for helping focus people's attention on the fact that, sure, humans have always transformed ecosystems, we've always cut down trees, we've always mined minerals, or at least for tens of thousands of years, but there's something qualitatively different now. But on the other hand, if we use Anthropocene to think, oh, we get to control the world even more than before, I think that's a really problematic idea because we are certainly moving a lot more minerals, consuming a lot more energy, at least some people are, than before World War II. But we are no more in control of Earth's processes than we've ever been.
0: Right. And we still depend on these kind of relationships that we have with all of these, you know, the more than human elements of Our world you know it's not just kind of our our toy to play with uh for better or worse exactly yeah so i don't want to like have you recap the entire book because then people won't have a reason to go and and check it out (laughs) on their own but uh you know just to to dig into to a little bit of it to illustrate for our listeners uh the the kinds of um conclusions you draw and the kind of things that you bring in i want to talk about the first of the animals that you write about which is the caribou and one of the things i found really interesting reading your caribou chapter was that in some ways it was as much a chapter about wolves as about <laughs> caribou because there are all these really important relationships you know between the caribou and the wolves and both of those back to to humans um so can you talk a bit about the this connection between wolves and caribou and how the the situation with caribou in the Lake Superior area kind of complicates some of the environmentalist narratives that we have about, you know, wolf culling and reintroduction.
1: Sure. Um, ever since graduate school, I've been a passionate fan of predator reintroduction, both for ecological reasons. I think predators are really crucial to many, many ecosystems, really crucial to the evolution of their prey the herbivores that predators such as wolves and grizzlies, for example, um, chase. And predator reintroduction, I think, is one of the really powerful successes. I love wolves. But in 2018, folks from the Michipikantin First Nations community, Lear Lapiano and Christian Schroeder, who was working with them, found something on my website that indicated I was interested in caribou. And they contacted me and they said, Langston, do you know what's going on with our caribou in the Lake Superior Basin? And I said, I don't know, tell me. And what essentially was happening was the entire Lake Superior, Upper Great Lakes caribou herd was down to about 18 individuals, more or less. They weren't completely sure on numbers because they're hard to count. And what had happened was, caribou had gotten trapped on Michipicoten Island, a large island in Lake Superior. They had gone out to the island for refugia from growing wolf populations, and a couple wolves had gotten out to the island. And basically, the caribou found themselves trapped on an island with wolves, and there had been about two thousand caribou, plus or minus, on Michipicoten Island and that had become the last caribou population, essentially last one in this region. And very quickly, wolves went from probably about two wolves to dozens of wolves, and caribou crashed from thousands of caribou to probably less than two dozen caribou very quickly. And so there was a group of caribou advocates, and they are very much believe in the importance of predation. They aren't trying to eliminate wolves from the landscape, but they were really concerned that if we let this small fragmentary population go extinct without intervening by either moving the wolves off the island or moving the caribou off this island, that we were allowing this once extraordinarily wide-ranging population to go extinct, that they would be completely disconnected from Hudson's Bay and James Bay, and essentially a massive chunk of Ontario's boreal forest landscape would be empty of caribou. And they were really frustrated because they felt that um, a lot of environmental groups, not all environmental groups, were like, well, you can't hurt the wolves, don't even think about it. And some of the biologists and managers within the Pakistan National Park on Lake Superior on Ontario's North Shore and within the ministry Um, that was supposed to be protecting caribou were essentially did not want to invest time and effort into moving this population around. They just felt, well, we have to do triage. We'll just let them be extirpated. If they're trapped with wolves, that's life. Um, And the advocates felt like we were making this massive decision or somebody was making this massive decision based on ideas about the only good wildlife is untouched wildlife and some natural balance. And we're essentially giving up on this really important population of a once- Extraordinarily important species, without bringing it to much bigger public attention. So they contacted me. They contacted news media. A lot of attention was suddenly drawn in the winter of 2018 to the situation, and under some pressure, the ministry agreed to allow some caribou to be helicoptered over to to, to Caribou Island, um, an isolated island in Lake Superior, and then another population to a group of islands called the Slate Islands. So it was very much a last minute rescue, expensive, um, but it essentially buys time through for these individuals. But what it also did was really show that we had almost extirpated wolves in the lower 48 of the United States and across chunks of the North, because they had become this sort of Target of hatred, as so many authors from Barry Lopez and of Wolves and Men, and the wonderful book Vicious show that American settler Americans, for some reason, complicated reasons, decided that wolves needed to be exterminated. And in the recent decades of rethinking restoration of predators, really transforming their um, their habitats and their populations we have suddenly ended up in a situation where predators can thrive in these new landscapes. Now that they're not being hunted anymore, they actually do really well with fragmented forests, for example, but that their prey, particularly caribou are really at risk in these Northern landscapes that essentially all these modifications from forestry and extractive energy development, create all these passages into snowy deep forests into boreal forests that allow wolves access to these increasingly fragmented caribou populations. So we've kind of ironically driven caribou off the land indirectly because of massive habitat loss, but the, you know, the, so the ultimate cause is these massive transformations of Northern landscapes. But to buy time to really rethink how we're doing industrial development in the North, we're going to have to be controlling and thinking about wolf populations and grizzly populations and other
0: predators.
1: And that's a really hard lesson for some environmentalists, including me, to learn.
0: Yeah, it's it can be a challenging thing when your assumptions about what's good and what's bad to do for the environment get challenged and complicated like that but i also think at least for me stories like that where you get all these different complexities in the relationships among all the different moving parts uh, that are going on in our environment like that's what makes it cool and exciting to work in this kind of field uh, and, and see how how all these things fit together and create the world that we have
1: Yeah, exactly. Simple solutions that we used to think would work, such as restore predators and before that destroy predators, are just too simple for a radically complex set of landscapes that are changing because we're partly creating these massive changes. And so I think we have to take responsibility for helping these other wildlife to persist
0: yeah, so I now want to go back and pick up on something that you touched on a little bit in some of your earlier answers, which was that you were writing this book during the sort of big lockdown of the the COVID-19 pandemic, and... So you're, you've got this book that's all about relationships and connections, and you're writing it at this time when we're trying to distance and isolate from each other for you know public health reasons. So what what was that like, trying to write this book during the pandemic?
1: Well, as you can imagine, it was enormously challenging. This book rose out of a series of lectures I gave at Brandeis. I was the Mandel lecturer in the humanities. And so they, I gave those in the spring of 2019. And so they commission a a book, which is much shorter than we might typically think, and is based in part on primary sources and interviews, but also takes broad arguments. Um, And I agree, because I thought that would be a really interesting book to write. They're very interesting books that are in conversation with broader publics. And, but And when push came to shove, when all of a sudden I got kicked out of Canada, my Fulbright suddenly ended, it was initially really frustrating because I had a whole series of interviews lined up with community members that just don't use Zoom. They're off in the bush in northern Ontario, and that's simply not going to work for them. Um, And I had a whole set of visits to archives, particularly in Ottawa, lined up, and again, You know, some things are digitized and online from different archives, but a lot of things are not. So at first I thought, well, I'm going to need an extra year or two because I need to go talk with people that I haven't talked with and I need to go visit archives. But my editor at Brandeis um, felt very strongly that while it was great to have some more time if I really needed it, that I might want to think instead about being in conversation more with these broader questions about what kind of relationships do we want with the larger set of more than human relationships around us? How do we think about agency? How do we think about our future in a rapidly warming world with our kin partners that are non-human? And they really encouraged me that, you know, don't get bogged down in the archives. They looked at my archival records and said, you have lots of archival records. You've already visited a lot of archives. This is not a traditional, you know, 250, 350 page history based on very detailed analysis of archives. So that was a real challenge for me, but it was the challenge I took initially when I agreed to write this book that really tried to engage with um. Uh, conversations about agency and about Indigenous perspectives and Indigenous trauma. So um, I was locked up in a tiny little cabin on Lake Superior for quite a while, which made it challenging to engage in conversations. Person to person, but I had a fabulous community of women in environmental history and political ecology that we had been meeting for several months, and we um, we were all isolated because of COVID. So we started Zooming every one to two weeks during starting with COVID, and that made an enormous difference in helping me think creatively about what I wanted to accomplish with the book and what it means to create community under challenging conditions.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned this is uh, you know a little bit shorter book than some of what you might expect as a you know an academic book, and it's really really readable in the way that you've uh, written it. Uh, so there's there's a lot going on, but it's not one of these like dense academic tomes that uh, you know people have to to slog through. <laughs> Thanks um,
1: very much. That's very much by design, and Brandeis is very much searching for that kind of book for these series, so. I'm glad it read that way.
0: Yeah, yep. Yeah. Uh, so another major theme that you uh, have in your book is the importance for uh, Euro-American settlers to learn from Indigenous people, and you, you know spend a lot of time talking about the things that you've learned from the variety of different Indigenous communities that you've worked with, uh, and you know how they relate to these species and so forth. And then the, the flip side of something like that is the danger of, you know, cultural appropriation of, you know, a bunch of, of white people assuming they know uh, what indigenous knowledge and relationships are all about, and kind of steamrolling over the actual uh, indigenous cultures. So, could you talk a bit about how you navigated these kind of political and ethical questions about the relationships between? settlers and indigenous people and, you know, kind of what advice you'd have for readers who are, you know, white or settler people uh, wanting to build these kind of uh, indigenous informed relationships with the, the species in the land that they're living.
1: Sure, absolutely. As I said before, I've been working on Upper Great Lakes questions for a couple decades now, and my grad students have for even longer and many of my grad students have been Indigenous, typically Anishinaabek, and I've worked with partners from different Anishinaabek communities and groups. And so we've all tried to... Um, Acknowledge that we are settlers, that we are, you know, here by the generosity of Anishinaabeg. I'm incredibly fortunate and grateful, for example, that I'm speaking today from 1842 treaty lands from a whole set of different Anishinaabeg nations, including Redcliffe um, Band, Bay Indian Community, Lacta Flambeau, and a host of others. And so I can't write about the upper Great Lakes, which is a place I love, a place that has been home for decades for me. I can't write about environmental changes in this region without centering Anishinaabeg and other indigenous and First Nations people. They're absolutely core to the history and to continuing futures, major, major, not just players or partners, but they're they're the core central people in this region, but I'm not Anishinaabeg. I'm not indigenous. I'm an Irish American settler colonial. Um, And so it becomes really tricky. Most of my work in the past decade or so has been by invitation to a certain extent. I work with some communities, say I do some work on the Extractive Industries Committees, of first the Binational Forum, and now the International Joint Commission's Extractive Industries Committee, run out of the Great Lakes Indian Fish and Wildlife Commission. And when tribal partners need specific things from us, if it meets my expertise, I try and help do it rather than me saying, hey, here's a project I have to do. Won't you be my partners in my work, which I don't think is very productive. So this project really grew out of the caribou, out of people from the First Nations contacting me and saying, we want some publicity for this. We want people to know what's going on. Um, The common loons, um, I did work with Kathy Brosmer, who's with the Sault Ste. Marie Nation, um, and also a graduate student here at Tech. And I've been extraordinarily fortunate throughout my career to be in partnership with Mike Dockery, who is now at University of Minnesota and Potawatomi member, enrolled member of the Potawatomi Band, and an extraordinary forest ecologist um. So those relationships have really driven the kinds of questions I'm asking. And I figure I have certain tools that I've been trained in doing over the years. For example, I was able to interpret the archives and use work from a whole set of different partners in understanding how central racism, to be blunt, was to the failure of the first big attempt to restore woodland caribou. That was in the 1930s in Minnesota's big bog region. And I tell that really depressing story about how these amazing Depression-era white wildlife biologists love caribou so much. They were so desperate to protect their last habitats, so desperate to protect this failed you know, effort to drain northern Minnesota. Um, but yet they're... Racist assumptions that Indian peoples couldn't be trusted not to destroy, not to kill every last caribou, led them to fence in this small population that they were trying to restore. And even though they knew fencing would sever migrations and make it important for these caribou to thrive, their fears of indigenous peoples shaped every every action they made and helped shape the failure of that restoration project. So the fact that I have certain methodologies and techniques that I've been really fortunate to develop over the years, I hope makes it possible for me to follow the guidance of of indigenous partners who are really interested in understanding more about changes in the region. But my ultimate goal is, in some ways, to put myself out of business, to do what I can to share my methods, to train students from tribes and First Nations and then step out of the way um, and watch them do their own extraordinary efforts at restoration and ecological transformation. And I tell some of those stories in the sturgeon chapter, which is really about indigenous led restoration projects that are just doing extraordinary, extraordinary things to restore sturgeon throughout the upper great lakes.
0: Yeah, I think you're, Sturgeon Chapter really reinforces that point that when these restoration things are Indigenous-led, they seem to work better uh, than when those Indigenous voices are pushed off to the side or not not incorporated into what we're trying to do.
1: Sure. And of course, it's really important for agencies led by um, say the states or federal government, not to simply say, oh, look, guys, it's up to you now. You folks get to restore all the stuff we, you know, transformed. Right, Good right. luck. <laughs> Too bad. We can't give yep. you any money. Budget counts. Yep. So that's not going to work. I mean, it's really, really important that treaties be respected, that sovereignty be respected, and that capacity be funded, such as with the new, you know, with the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative, which has been an extraordinary effort for years to help restore um, degraded sites and just got another billion dollars worth of funding and the infrastructure bill that passed a couple days ago. And so that kind of capacity building, which often comes down to money and education and training, is really essential for respecting the treaties and helping tribes lead the way with what is called two-eyed seeing which is based in indigenous knowledge but also it um, really pays close attention to western scientific fisheries knowledge wildlife knowledge as well
0: yeah Okay. okay so we always like to end our conversations by asking what you're working on next what kind of projects are you taking up now that this book is out
1: well, I have two different projects. Thanks for asking. During COVID and also when I was on sabbatical starting out, um, I was a Mellon Fellow at University of Oregon in fall of 2019, where I really started this project and then the Fulbright in the winter of 2020. And during that time, my husband couldn't come for the whole time. We have a pit bull, so the pit bull wasn't allowed into Ontario. So I had a lot of time. So when I wasn't working or cross-country skiing, I started painting because I realized I needed a hobby to take my mind off politics or obsessing about things I couldn't really change. And so I have been doing a lot of painting of climate change in the upper Great Lakes and wildlife populations. So, one project I'm really interested in is getting back to my roots as an ornithologist working on migratory birds, which is a theme, of course, I picked up in this book with loons. But I am combining painting and interviews with many of my um, former partners in avian ecology and looking at birds as sentinel species, how different cultures have envisioned birds as telling us stories about change, about environmental change, and how powerfully that's accelerated with concerns about climate change. And so I'm painting a series of paintings and also setting up a series of interviews and conversations, and it'll be part memoir as well. And then I'm also doing a more traditional, but I hope also popular book that looks at these wacky, whoops, Excuse me, my microphone fell out. I'm also doing a project that looks at translocation efforts to move reindeer and caribou all over the world. Since the 1700s, when a big herd of caribou were moved to Iceland, of all places, and caribou reindeer have been moved around the world in the hopes, often by settlers, often by Europeans, to tame or domesticate indigenous people. So they would be tamed reindeer over to make, say, Inuit or Eskimo people stop trying to hunt wild reindeer and caribou and instead become domesticated. And this happened all over the world. And there were some really interesting tweaks on it. When, for example, After World War II, Sami people brought reindeer over to Scotland because they felt really bad that the Scots were so hungry after World War II. So there were some really interesting places. But reindeer, caribou have been the favorite animal to move around the world um, in pursuit of these ideas about domesticating people who were migratory people. And they've had some really interesting and fun outcomes, often some tragic outcomes. So I'm starting to think about ways of thinking about moving animals around the world and what that suggests to us about the future of wildlife and people in an era of climate change. But also just gives us an opportunity to think about why reindeer have been so important to so many people around the world for so long.
0: All right. Well, that sounds fascinating. Maybe we'll have you back on uh, in a little while to talk about that. I hope so. All right, well, Dr. Langston, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: It's been a great pleasure. Thank you, Stanton.
0: You just heard a conversation with Nancy Langston, author of Climate Ghosts, Migratory Species in the Anthropocene, published this year by Brandeis University Press.